Hey everybody, this is Chris Cosentino, and we are sitting here in the newest episode of Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino, and I am sitting here with Andrew Zimmern. How are you, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> I'm great! I love it. So what's going on? Just got into town. Yeah. We're sitting here in, can we tell, can I tell them where we are? Sure. We're hiding out in the PDR at Jack Rabbit. Yep. Uh, AKA in the, the rabbit hole, we call yeah, it. In the, at the Dunaway in Portland. And uh, I love things. I love spontaneity in life because I'm an overplanned person. So I was on the plane texting you from my phone, and you <laughs> said, Do you want to do my podcast? And I said, Sure. How which, about this afternoon? And that was like three hours ago, which I was shocked. I had no idea you were coming. No Surprise. idea you were coming to town. I love it. Well, this, it's, 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 I didn't really know I was coming here, but the, we're shooting for my as yet to be announced, uh, new show and we're, it's part of our addiction and, uh, alcoholism episode. Amazing. And we're shooting at, uh, the zero proof dinner here on Friday night that I was a part of last year as a participant yep. Uh, and that Gabe Rucker created. And so I, I came in a night early from Phoenix where I was shooting our voter suppression episode oh, of wow. the new show. And I'm sure that yeah, was, interesting. I was, and I was, I was psyched. I'm like, I need an extra, it's great to have an extra night here in a town that I, I never get to enough. I love Portland, especially at this time of year. So yes, here I am. Portland is magic. I mean, every time I come here, I'm always inspired and mm -hmm. it, it's truly an artisan craftsman yes. community, whether it's bicycle building or food or mm -hmm. cheese making or farmers. I mean, huge hemp industry, cannabis industry. You have leather work, you have beautiful clothing. DIY all the way. Oh yeah. Intricate I mean, Japanese desserts to wine making. I mean, oh, it's yeah. just, it's, it's crazy what's gone on here and beer over beer, the, tons of beer. And over the years I've been lucky enough to document a lot of it in different shows. We did a Zimmern list here, a delicious destinations here, a bizarre foods here. I'm blanking on another one that I made here. <laughs> um, and what's it, it's, it's great because there are certain cultures, like I say, the word new Orleans and you can smell it and taste it. Right. And hear it. Right. You, you just can, you can feel it all. Portland has its own identity and there's a lot of cities that claim to want to have the same kind of mojo that Portland has, but unless you actually have a personality that everyone can identify, it's kind of hard. This place you can identify. And now the food scene is just explosively good. I think this is the only place where you can have Darth Vader in a kilt on a unicycle playing the bagpipes with flames coming out of it just on a street corner. Correct. And he might not be uh, a crazy person in need of assistance. No, he's probably he just an just, artist. Exactly. And that is, I hear this from people all the time who carry around some kind of, and I feel sorry for them, but they, they carry around a natural cultural bias that anything that looks, thinks, or smells different to them has to be a troubling situation. Oh, yeah. And I always talk about, you know, Portland and the street scene here where there's lots of people just, you know, they, they come out of their nine to five job at the accounting company and go right out and start playing music on the street. And I'm just, you know, they're not necessarily people who need anything other than us enjoying their art. I was coming out 
of the hotel that I stayed in the last time I was here. And there was one of those, you've probably seen them around town. There's two or three, these spontaneous poets. And what you do is they have a typewriter oh, yeah. and a little table and you sit down and they ask you like four or five very generic questions about your life. And then they write a poem for you and you give them a couple dollars suggested donation. And the poem is oftentimes just incredibly meaningful. Now I've done it twice. And when I got to the hotel, he wasn't there. And I'm now like, I need to bump into this guy <laughs> because I have them framed in, in my house. So yeah, Portland's magical. That's unreal. Yeah. It's magical. <laughs> so Andrew, you've done, there's so many things that you've done along the road. We've known each mm -hmm. other for how many a years? A long time. Long time. We'll leave it as a long time. And I think, you know, your road to where you are now is very different from you worked professionally yeah. in the kitchens. Yeah. You've talked openly about your addiction. Yeah. Um, I lost my mind and then I found it. <laughs> that's a very familiar <laughs> thing here too. And, and I get that. And I think you have really been a major, major outspoken person about people learning to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I think that yes. that's huge because there's a part of people, the fear, like you just mentioned a moment ago, which was about the fear of somebody looking different or something yes. tasting different or smelling different. People are afraid to talk about being different. We have developed a culture and, and it, I mean, it's, it's, th this is quantifiable. It's historical, it's sociological, it's culture. We have developed a society that messages to the individuals here that asking for help is a sign of weakness. Now, when you go back to earliest days of our, of our, I mean, our hominid existence, I'm talking 40,000 years, communication and asking for help was always a sign of strength. It's, it's never been a sign of weakness. In the most successful communities that you can identify on the planet, in the most successful corporate cultures, artistic communities, tribes, however you choose to define them, any gathered group, that is working towards a common goal, the most successful groups are the ones where asking for help is seen as a sign of strength because it forgives anyone for the way their, their box on top of their neck might process information. And we all process information differently. So in the pursuit of trying to get the best out of people and for people to perform at their peak, the last thing you want is for somebody to be listening to a tape in their head that says, I can't tell the truth. I can't ask for help. I can't be who I really am. When we create a culture that allows for that, it is the dignity and respect that allows people to flourish and grow and realize their full potential. And whether it's a cook in the kitchen, a musician in a band, an accountant in a, you know, at Ernst and Young, a, a, a lawyer, you, you name it, they are more productive, more responsible, a better member of society. And I think it's a crucial, I, I learned it in, in, you know, the early days of my recovery when, you know, everybody pointed out to me that I was an obnoxious know-it-all and that my best thinking had gotten my life so fucked up. So why was I trusting what I thought about a given situation to be true? That's a good if, point. If every piece of empirical data showed that my best thinking got me almost dead, 
homeless for a year and thankfully shipped to a treatment center in the middle of the, you know, great white North. Um, <laughs> why would I think that my best thinking could make, start to make decisions for my life just because I put the cork in the bottle and put away the drugs. My, my, my sponsor in the 12 step program that I regularly attend beat it into me and thank God for him that you, you can act your way into right thinking, but you can't think your way into right acting. And I, I think that's the great lesson that there is in life is you actually have to be a, a, a human doing being a human being is not quite enough. It's stagnant. The only fish that float are dead. You got to be moving, got to be doing. I'm actually dumbfounded right now because I think that's a really, I mean, look, let's be honest. I've called you how many times when the, the ship is sinking? Plenty. Plenty. But that's because that, that's we're friends in real yes. life. We, we also began our friendship being very, very, very honest with each other. And can I tell this story? Sure. Because I, I think it's something that's actually not done enough. Um, so we had known each other professionally for a couple of years. But then the very, I think the first year of Bizarre Foods, we did an episode Actually, I think it was for a piece of branded content that I was doing. It was the, was it the truck? Actually, yeah. And um, so it predates, you know, this is whatever, 15 years ago. And we we spent the day together and lots of fun. Two guys, you know, ebullient, enjoying each other's company, having fun, great day, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, and we then sat in a car that was going to take us we had to shoot a scene in a car and we had an issue with camera timing this that and the other thing and we had like 20 minutes just sitting in the back of an air-conditioned car parked on the street and I actually I and I forget who went first but I believe I said something to you like you know so you know how's it going with the rest of your life or whatever you know like now, most people, when I say that to them, you don't get an honest answer. I try to give an honest answer to people. I mean, look, not absolute complete strangers. I mean, at this point in my life, there's a certain level of transparency and trust. You know, someone has to earn that for at least 10 minutes before I'm going to dump my real life yeah. shit on them because that's very valuable. That's, that's, that's really important stuff, right? And I need to know someone's going to be a good caretaker of that. But I, I said, you know, What's going on? And you actually looked at me. Oh, I know what it was. I had just gotten off. I was on a phone call for the first five minutes, and it was not a good phone call. It involved some family, messy yep. family situation. And you were in the car with me, and you heard it. And then I turned to you, and I kind of rolled my eyes. I said, how are you? And you responded with a bunch of real-life stuff that you were having a tough time with. And then I got to – and we, we talked for like 20 minutes about this because we both have kids the same age – uh, we'd been married about the same amount of time. I mean, just we'd, we had a lot in common away from our professional lives. And we had a really, really good talk about it. And from that moment on, after that 20 minutes, 
we actually were very close. I talked to you about real life stuff that I don't talk to other people about. And you talk to me about real life stuff that I know you don't share freely with very many people because you, but that's how you get close to someone by offering up. So you take a risk. If you don't take a risk, if you don't invest in the loss, you're never going to find those people that you can connect with and be close with. And I know I can call you up and say the craziest shit or tell you I've done something awful and you're not going to judge me and you're nope. just going to be there with me in it. And, and most importantly, because you've been through the, the ringer, you're not going to try to fix it right away. You're going to be my friend. And it is a, a new thing that I've learned a lot of those other things I learned a long time ago, but the newest thing that I learned is actually kind of fascinating. Um, and I think we, we, we talked about this, uh, once on one of those phone calls, I, I've been sober almost 28 years and the last 15 years really focusing on what a lot of people call emotional sobriety, right? So I'm not worried about drinking tonight, but I am worried about being an asshole to someone. I mean, that's, there's a much greater chance of that happening than me going out and having a beer. So, um, I always go away and, you know, I do workshops at places like onsite in Tennessee or the meadows in Arizona or Hazelden, uh, Betty Ford in, in Minnesota where I live or, you know, wherever I happen to be, there's great, great programs around where I can do a three or four day, five day workshop on, you know, living more centered or, um, uh, trauma or intimacy, just stuff that advances that, that just working on myself. Right. And at one of these, uh, workshops, I learned something super, super valuable. And the idea was this, you gotta co-regulate with someone else before you operationalize. Otherwise you don't build trust and empathy and safety. Now that sounds like, huh? What? So got to co-regulate with someone before you operationalize. Otherwise you don't build safety and empathy and connection. So what's a great example? And I know you'll be able to relate to this. So I come home and I pull into the driveway and I'm freaking out and I race into the house and to whoever's there significant other, wife, best friend, whatever, kid, whatever. Oh my God, I lost my phone. And I think I left it at work, but I don't really know where it is. And I have to be, it's the only information for the, you know, whatever, buying the car, closing the house, the, the kids meeting at school is on the phone and blah, 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 blah. And you're freaking out. And if the person there looks at you and says, did you call the security person at the office? It, you're lost because I'm not looking for some, I'm an adult. I'm not looking for someone to tell me what to do. Operationalize. You want somebody to hear you. I just want someone exactly to say, Oh my God, that's awful. And the moment that someone says, Oh my God, that's awful. I'm like, yeah, it's terrible. And then they're like, well, what should we do? Or do you want to, you know, what can we do? You know, it, it, it instantaneously the co-regulation can be one sentence, but if you operationalize first, you've, you've lost. And without doing that, we don't have empathy and connection and understanding. And it's, I, I think all of these things, asking for help, acting your way into right thinking, co-regulating before operationalizing, 
are one by one these kind of rules in life that I kind of collect and then you actually have to practice them like putting because the guys that I mentor what's putting putting you know golf I don't know that sport oh yeah the, that's, like, uh, that, that's the happy Gilmore thing right that's the happy Gilmore okay thing. yeah I know that yeah but for people, you know, there's so many folks who, like, if they want to, um, they say they play golf and they practice all winter on the little putting green in the office of the house or they go down to the driving range or whatever. And that's smart. You're practicing. So if you want to evolve life skills and spiritual principles, you have to actually practice them. So when the shit hits the fan, you act automatically rather than... Uh, get in your head. It's like shooting. That's why these NBA guys, you know, shoot 503 throws at the end of practice because when it's two seconds left on the buzzer, down by one, two shot foul, they want to step to the line and drain two. It's that simple. With, every, with all the noise and yeah, people taunting practice, them. practice, practice, practice. And I think, I think that's a really, you know, people need to feel that they're being heard, especially yep. when... They are going pear-shaped. Yeah. And I think that is the biggest mistake that's currently... It's It happens all the time and people don't realize it. They're in fear of what the individual is talking about a lot of the times. Yeah. Whether it's a mental health issue or an addiction issue. Yeah. The instant reaction is to give direction yeah. first. Or, or judge. Judge. Yeah. Or just, I don't have time for that because yeah. they're afraid of it. Yeah. And that's the scary part because... Some of those folks, all they need to hear is, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And it'll it'll de-escalate, so mm -hmm. then the problem can be solved Yep, and alleviate pressure on everyone mm -hmm. and make that individual feel safe enough to let more out of the bag so that you can really figure out what the real problem is. 1,000%. And, and we have so many people now, you know, I... I it's hard for me, uh, you know, and I talk to a lot of professionals about this. It's hard for me, you know, we hear that numbers are escalating. Uh, suicide, depression issue, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just getting bigger. Things are worse and worse and worse. And I do believe that there is some trauma from the last two or three years in this country that I'm people sure. are feeling across across the board, whether it's children in gun violence in our schools that have to learn a different way of behaving and thinking that is its own implied creating its own trauma, whether it's the situation at our borders, uh, how we're treating our immigrant and migrant community in this country, where there's a chilling atmosphere of fear that's pervasive there that is traumatized. We keep traumatizing more groups of people in this country than we, so I believe the numbers are going up. I also believe, I believe that data to be true. I also believe empirically that we also have on the good side created a slightly better atmosphere because I see it. I see it in social. I mean, people love to, you know, shit shame the whole social thing. And yes, there are lots of problems with social media. However, I also see a lot of benefit in collective group think. And I see benefit in people just going online and seeing when someone posts something like, you're good enough, just wanted you to know that today. And it's just a, or one of those pictures of the little cat hanging from the chin up bar, you know, yeah. hang in there. I mean, those are the little things that may help someone get, you know, one more hour along in their day without melting down. 
Um, I do believe we have to have a national conversation about this, you know, from a tactical standpoint, you know, it's why I'm also working with a lot of different organizations on getting the mental health parity laws, uh, some more teeth. Um, you know, a long time ago, uh, Senator Wellstone, Paul Wellstone from Minnesota was the, the, the big proponent of the mental health parity law so that anyone with a mental health issue could get the same insurance, the same treatment, the same patient's tolerance and understanding that someone who had a broken leg has if they walked into an emergency room. And we've taken our counselors, we still have school nurses in our schools, but we've taken mental health counselors and other paraprofessionals out of our school system, right? To identify young people. Can't afford them. Can't afford, even afford the books but we or can't, school lunch. Right. Can't, but we also can't afford, like lunch, like books, to, in my opinion, not have them in schools. I agree. Because because the we're paying for it down the road with escalation of violence issues in our criminal justice system, with our health, uh, healthcare costs and all that other stuff skyrocketing. So we can pay a, a decent amount of money for it now or pay a lot more later. But if we don't start making some real substantive change with our mental health parity laws so that people with problems can actually get them addressed, we now have, look at the restaurant industry. You and I both own restaurants. We both cook. We're both in. We do a lot of other things, right? But we do that. Our, our industry has become so much more engaged on this issue it has become so much more we've we're we're creating sustainable workplaces we're listening better we're caring more about the people who are in our environments so if we identify these issues what happens when that person actually goes to seek help and is like you know and they're a server or a line cook and their insurance doesn't cover a 200 dollars an hour uh shrink visit once a week what if what they really need is to go somewhere for a week and get some some real treatment for whatever the ism is. doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever it is. Because um, sometimes one hour a week is just keeps you in the churn and burn. It's just the, the defective part of the system. So th those are the things that concern me. So it's why I'm, I, I believe very strongly in, you know, the power of legislative, you know, dictum to help us solve problems too. I think there's a, there's a whole slew of, little pieces and puzzles that have created i mean there's the fomo mm -hmm. right there's the yep. anxiety of fear of missing out yep and that has a lot to do with with our phones like we weren't constantly and this is something that you know yeah. i'm just as guilty as you are we were how, yep. how often are you yep. on the phone yep we are constantly in contact by email text phone social media mm -hmm. um your phone's the new low jack so you yeah. know where your kid is or they know where you are but also we, when we're looking at these images of what people are doing, <laughs> it creates anxiety in yes. a lot of folks. It creates depression because nobody's posting. And the other day I was joking around with these guys and they were like, hey, chef, you want me to take a picture of you doing dishes? Because mm -hmm. two dishwashers didn't show. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Like, it's life. Yeah. But nobody posts pictures of them having to do the dishes. They post pictures of the beautiful dinner plate or service right. in the fire. Yes. Nobody posts pictures well, of some, cleaning bathrooms. I will say, I will say there are some leaders on this issue. Um, I have seen, um, in, and, you know, obviously I know it on people who are in my feed. So it's, I mean, yeah. right. So it's sort of self-selecting. So I know that there's lots of other people that deserve a tip of the hat. 
But the first person that I said, about a year and a half ago, my friend Michelle Branch, uh, who's a singer-songwriter, married to Pat Carney of the Black Keys, um, posted a picture of herself without makeup. It was the first person I saw do that. It became really, turned out it was part of like a thing where lots of, you know, someone had said, hey, thousand powerful women out there, let's post pictures of ourselves. All the way up to last week, uh, where I know, I think it was uh, Demi Lovato, was it Demi Lovato, who posted a picture of herself that wasn't photoshopped, where her body wasn't photoshopped. I hope I'm getting this uh, right. Um, but it was a, a famous young singer who said, this is what my legs look like. I have cellulite, and so do 99% of all other women, and this is what a real woman's body looks like. Lita Dunham does it. Sophia Bush does it. I mean, there's all these people who I see doing this, and I know that folks like you and I, what it, I guess what it is is we, if we compare how we feel inside with how someone else looks on the outside, we're in big trouble because every human being has giant-sized problems. Um, if I look, you know, I'll just use us as an example because it's us sitting here, yeah. right? There's one way to describe your story right now with all the things that are, you know, we, I can paint the rosiest picture in the world, but it leaves out the real-life problems, right? How exciting you've got a new restaurant that's opening in Texas, right? But I know as someone who travels for a living that that's a disruptor in your life as a husband and a dad. I have the same thing. I got a, a new show coming out in November. If it's successful, it means I'm going to be doing a lot more episodes at a time where I'm trying to stay home more uh, to spend time with my kid. So there's a different side to everything. Everything is a trade-off. And the reality is I'm very grateful just personally for my, for my life and what it's given me and the opportunities. At the same time, when someone says to me, I'm really struggling today and I'm kind of going out of my mind, I can just reach back to last night or this morning when I was struggling and going out of my mind because trying to, a couple fires at work, a couple fires at home, and I just felt overwhelmed. Luckily, I have a process in my life to help me match calamity with some little bit of serenity. And I did my little prayer. I did my little rituals that kind of calmed me down and just got quiet because I realized I, me getting all wound up doesn't make the problem go away. No, it's <laughs> So just I just need to like it. calm down and do my little five-minute meditation thing. But that is, we all, we all are struggling. In with our own way, shit. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, someone posted, say, T. Boone Pickens, the billionaire investor uh, died, I think last night. I saw it this morning when I woke up and he famously said something like, Oh, you know, the, the last billion was, you know, easier than the first billion or something like that. Right. And somebody commented on this quote. Uh, well, that didn't mean anything to the people in his life, the money he can't spend it anywhere. What can't you the only thing in the world you can't buy is time. And you also can't buy real respect and admiration of your peers, right? What did Maya Angelou say? They're not going to remember what you did. They're going to remember how you made them feel. I mean, that's real, that's, that's real that's stuff. Really and we put in this country 
to go back to the point that you were making that got us off on this tangent, we have to start focusing on the real stuff in, in our world. Otherwise, um, we're, we're going to keep extending this artificial society that has, uh, that gives people the wrong messaging, like asking for help is a sign of weakness. The other day I was um, with a at, a, at a conference and we were talking about employment and mental health with work and mm-hmm. staff and running restaurants. And um, there was somebody there that said something that was really, I thought was really great. Nobody on their deathbed ever says, I wish I'd worked more. No one says that. No one says that. And I was like, you know, it's really true because we all have goals in life to succeed, to take care of our families, to be better people. But ultimately, like you just said, when you're in the ground, you're not going to spend the money. You're not going to, you know, as long as you can live a good life, be happy, mm-hmm. treat people with respect, do the right thing every day. If you can, it's, it ultimately boils down to, can you stand and look yourself in the mirror? Yeah. yeah. Can you live with yourself? Do you know who I have a lot of, and I have so much respect for, for these people who pursue their own happiness because the only people that can, the only person who can make Andrew happy is Andrew. Right. And I've been homeless in my life and I've had homes. I've had relationships and I've had times where I haven't had relationships. I've had times in my life where I've, you know, had money and times in my life when I haven't had money and the happiest times in my life actually None of those things were important is where it's when I was actually centered and I was just grateful and happy with what I had because I was making healthy decisions for myself. And there's, there's a woman, uh, and God, I hope I'm getting this all right. Uh, I think I am, but, uh, Katiana Hong, who was the work with Christopher Costow. She was the chef at charter Oak, uh-huh. right? Insanely talented young woman at the height, you know, we're old. This is a young person's profession. <laughs> no, it really, I mean, you know, the, the hours, the, the yeah. time, all the rest of that kind of stuff. So here's a young woman in the, in the catbird seat, you know, working with one of the greatest chefs on planet Earth in one of the greatest physical locations to be a chef. Right. In a place in California where your access to ingredients. I mean, if you're going to be a chef somewhere, what a marvelous place to cook. Right. Yeah. And in a thriving restaurant, super popular, line out the door of people that want to work there. And she left it because she wants to have a family. And I just saw that yesterday when I, when she announced that she was leaving. I, and, I, and I kept thinking I should just send her, I should just DM her and say, what's your next move? Because I was like, I, I, had, I had met her. Uh, and her husband when they uh, came to Minneapolis um, to cook. And I was so impressed with them. I admired them from afar, eaten their food, but I never got to spend a little time with them. And uh, I got some time to spend a little bit of time with them one night in Minneapolis. I was so impressed with her. And, you know, I I, I sat there and, I you know, I, I just saw this yesterday in someone's post about it. And uh, I was like, wow, that's, that's leadership when you're not trying to lead. By, by bucking the trend, by looking out for yourself, which some people would say is that you're making a selfish choice. Darn right. She's making a selfish choice to have a family and lead a certain kind of life 
And I just think that's fantastic. Andrew Luck, we saw the same thing. The outrage that I thought was such bullshit when Andrew Luck said out of nowhere, yeah, I'm not going to play football anymore. I was like, bravo, man. That's great. You have nothing to prove to anyone. You know, lit up the college football world, lit up the pro world, everyone who had them in their fantasy league or, you know, the and, and I feel bad for this for fans of the Colts and for fans of his. I was a fan of his. I would have liked to have seen him play more. But what's more important is that he do what he wants to do. It's his life. He doesn't owe anybody anything. It's a hard thing for a lot of people to make that decision because they feel yes. like they're going down a path. Yes. They're in that path and they, they're in this high speed lane mm-hmm. and they can't hit the brakes mm-hmm. because, well, look at our career, look mm-hmm. at our industry. Yes. And ultimately, like you said, fish that aren't swimming are floating. It's the same thing. Right. If you're not swimming in mm-hmm. the fast lane, you're getting either run over. Or- well, I, I believe you, you have to keep moving. You got to be moving towards something positive. Correct. Right. The, But you were right about our industry, right? The message that, and I've seen more of it now than ever before. You don't have to, you know, have seven restaurants and a show, a TV show and four books. That's not available for everyone. And it's not a lesson in happiness or success. It's not going to get you where you want to be. And we have had some very successful people in our industry um, whose legacy hopefully will be that don't judge a book by its cover. You never know what's going on inside someone and better to be talking to people and sharing what's really going on because we read about people every single week who have, you know, either chosen to exit this world, made a conscious choice for that, or succumbed to some demon and gone off the rails with it. I just read this young chef at uh, Cipriani Dolce in New York was uh, uh, died of an ecstasy overdose because um, he had this crazy secret life with, you know, late night partying and, you know, uh, some woman took him to this apartment and the woman and the male accomplice, you know, gave him too much bad ecstasy and then didn't call 911 when he was overdosing and they found him dead in the apartment. And I had met this guy at an event in New York and I was just like, Oh my gosh, our choices lead us to places that are so, so scary. And I know what it's like to be an addict, right? And so when someone is being led around by their disease, no matter what it is, no matter what the ism is, we need to be messaging to people that there is a easier, softer way. There is a solution to those things. And I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. You got to open up and talk to people and trust them and, and build your people. And we need to be there to listen for other human beings. You know, people haven't, I think the, the world has forgotten how to just listen. Mm, sure. I mean, sure have. And there's actually, there's actually a way to listen and a way that's not listening. 
You know, just because you're standing there while someone else is talking without your mouth open doesn't mean you're listening. <laughs> so we've got there's so many things. I mean, you've touched upon addiction. Well, not just touched, but we've yeah. talked about that. We've talked about mental health. I, I, you, I think you really opened a door for a lot of folks, not only to speak about those things, but also to kind of see the world mm-hmm. and embrace culture Mm -hmm. and i think you touched a part of the u.s that wouldn't have normally been so open-minded to those places and i think that i I don't know if you realize how much you did that but i've seen that in so many people that i can't even get them to use salt and butter in their cooking for (laughs) crying out loud but yet they're they would love to try the things that you eat which is I mean, I'm like, there is, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was very uncomfortable with that up to about three or four years ago. And, um, I don't know why, uh, maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome, you know, someone, Oh my God, you've done all this. You've done, it was so important and you've influenced so many people. And in my head, I'm thinking to myself, well, if you, if you only knew the problems that I was having in my real life, um, but once I sort of worked out some of that stuff for myself, um, the net net was that I now just say thank you. And I also, in having stopped making uh, Bizarre Foods and Zimmern List and Food Truck Tip and Delicious Destinations and all that, um, and moving on to a new place in my career, I have a greater appreciation for what I saw and accomplished. And I have a much keener sense of what it meant to so many people. I get stopped, you know, 20 times a day. I'm super lucky with people who say, Hey dude, you changed my life or you changed my kid's life. Or I, I went here because you made it seem safe and, and comfortable and appealing. And, you know, when it comes to, places where black and brown people live when it comes to cultures that we think we know, but we don't know Yeah, to take someone in using food as the, you know, the microscope to which to look at that culture and those people and show people just what a family meal looks like in a hundred and however many countries we, you know, I've been to 174 countries. I think I shot TV in over a hundred of them. Um, over 14 years, um, that's a pretty big, deep legacy of work. And I'm not alone in it either. There's lots of people, you know, from modern day vloggers and YouTubers, um, who are doing that and showing people the world, you know, guys, I mean, I love what, you know, Mark Weens is doing, um, on migrationology and, you know, there's peers of ours who, you know, legendary and awarded like Bourdain, who I think did it better than anyone. Um, I, 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 I think they're, I think it's super important for those of us who are in a position of being makers in media to show people things, to increase understanding and awareness in the world, because we certainly have a world predicated on defining ourselves by our differences, right? You, you know, who do you like to screw? What God do you want to pray to? What music do you listen to? What language do you speak? What color is your skin? And judge, 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 judge. And at the end of the day, what I've learned is 
we we all have the same hopes and dreams and fears you know as parents and human beings and we have lots more in common than we have things that separate us the simple plate of food transcends all boundaries oh yeah politics religion family feuds all the above Mm -hmm. and i think not only you just going to those countries opened people's eyes in the u.s but also open the people's eyes in all those countries you visited to that. Oh yes, not everybody is ignorant. Well, we from were, the US. I was I was very lucky in that, you know, one of the differences, um, you know, I was I was lucky. My show aired in 150 countries, so people in Spain were seeing what a meal looked like in Birmingham, Alabama. People in, you know, uh, Paraguay were seeing what people in Iceland were like and vice versa when they were watching my content. So that's a very, very powerful thing. You cross-culture everywhere. Yeah, and it's it's the same lesson that we're trying to to teach folks. Um, So I, I just, I was in the right place at the right time, the right network that had the right distribution deal. I mean, people don't realize that you know, as, uh, as big as Food Network is, right? International distribution of those shows is very small. Um, the, you know, I've had TV that to this day plays in mainland China. You know, there's, there's not a lot of people who have a show no. that airs, in, you know, in the PRC. Um, that is, and, and that's owing to the distribution deals that the old Travel Channel made for my programming and... It's just, I mean, it's just, that's just luck. That's just luck. And so it's, it's, I'm very appreciative of that. And I also take it very seriously. I mean, we've talked about this a lot and I even said it in the show. I'd rather be a, a, a good dinner guest and eat something that I may not like or may not be safe for me to eat rather than be the douchey TV host. I mean, any day of the week, better to be a good guest, you know, and, and, Tony did the same thing. And for a long time, his content was distributed, you know, all around the world. And now is thanks to the streamers that carry, you know, all of our shows. Um, it's, um, it's a really, really fascinating thing to see how that needle has moved for cultural appreciation through food because everyone eats and we all have the same conversation. Every grandmother and every, house I've been in. Sometimes it's not a house. Sometimes it's just, you know, a jungle floor. I mean, you know, yeah. people have seen my show. It's not just in in, you know, in cities. We're I've seen you after tribal. come back from some of these places. Yeah, well, that's true. You have. <laughs> um, and it is a, you know, you, you the in many places, I'm the only American person or only white person they've ever seen. And may ever see based on the history of that tribe or people or place, depending where it is. I mean, I can think of a dozen off the top of my head right now where that was that was true. So I take that responsibility really, really seriously. And so I want to be as as open minded and generous and kind and accepting. And if that means I have to eat the something that is, you know, I'll comment, you know. And I don't need to tell someone I don't like it. I can just say you have beautiful earrings and thank them for the meal. And because my goal is I want other people to see those people as they truly are. That's the goal. So in, in, in all, 
What is the, one of the more common questions that somebody would ask you when you visited them? I mean, I'm sure you get the same question from all the folks here in the States. Like, what is the craziest thing you've ever eaten? Yes. Right? That's the U.S. question. Yes. But what is, what is the guest's home or those folks that you're meeting with, say, in the jungles uh, in the middle of Costa Rica or, or somewhere? They don't understand the tribal people, the first people, the indigenous people of the world, especially the protected tribes universally do not understand why we're such wimps universally and will make fun of us for that. And the reason is, is they can't believe they know intrinsically, but also because in many cases their kids are going to schools that an NGO set up or they, they have access to information now that they didn't have 20 years ago. They, they know that we are not as smart and have fewer skills than they do, yet they're looked down upon. So I'll give you a really two really great examples. And this could be, of course, let, let me preface this, this could be completely perceived in the wrong way in what you're saying, that because you're saying that they think we're, we, we frown upon them. We do. But they're also... They're, they're way superior. Because... And and people, of course, are going to take this in the wrong way. I'm just going to put no, it out they're there. not. They're, I'm, they're, I'm, I'm telling you, they they want. I mean, here's because here's the thing: in the tribal world, every single human being in that tribal community, man, woman, and child, is a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, an engineer, a pharmacist, a cook, a veterinarian. I mean, you just go on and on down the road: a warrior, um, a builder. They, they all, you have to have a massive skill set to survive in a world where oftentimes you are called upon to do those things immediately. And that is why they spend from the earliest age, you know, into their early teen years where there's typically some rite of passage for boys and girls, um, where they then become an adult much earlier than here, where they actually have to contribute to the tribe, Right. So um, I go to, uh, we, we sent a crew, we did a, a pilot called uh, Curious Cures. It was like a, um, the medicine version of bizarre foods, right? We're going to go and spend time with people all over the world who use jungle medicine, you know, forward thinking, you know, new age medicine, everything in between to cure the ills of the world and explore. It was a travelogue show based on, uh, healing. And we sent our, uh, our, our host down to, um, the, uh, Peruvian Amazon to a place that took a day and a half to get to by boat. You seaplaned in to a city that doesn't have roads, Iquitos, which is a jumping off place into the river system, Amazonian river system in, in that part of the country and traveled a day and a half by boat to get to these people. Now the tribe, um, uh, worshiped, uh, jaguars, right. And they would tattoo their faces with whiskers and all this kind of stuff. And they walked around in loincloths and they would, uh, capture these frogs, very poisonous frogs that have a bufotoxin that they secrete from their spine. It's a defense mechanism. This frog also exists in 
in Australia, it's the only thing that crocodiles kills crocodiles. The only predator, the, you see 30 pound giant salty crocs, saltwater crocs with their tummocks, stomachs exploded in the estuaries because they ate too many of these frogs, right? And the frogs secrete this toxin, it kills the crocodile. So, but in very low doses, this bufotoxin makes you trip your, your balls off for two days, <laughs> right? I mean, you get higher in shit, you throw up, right? Just like a lot of other hallucinogenics or opiates. And then you're even higher than you were before. And the, the, the tribal people, they, they do this. They actually burn it into their skin and in very low doses. And they reach a plane of consciousness where they believe that they are better hunters. They're more attuned to the nighttime in the jungle. So when they go out and hunt, they can be more successful in bringing in food. When they want to talk to their ancestors, they can tune in to where their ancestors are. And interviewing them, when I was looking at the, at the internal rough cuts that were circulating when the team got back, because my production company made this show, um, we were listening to this interview with one of the tribal shamans, and he's had a chance because he's, he, they go down the river system and trade with people in other towns, and they get information back. But they also know because of the tribal authorities and the people who, you know, uh, legal authorities in that river system, right, that they have been persecuted against, told to move off their lands, you know, right? There's all kinds of issues now with, with that. And they... They are shocked that, quote unquote, people who live in an organ, what we would refer to as a more organized society, a modern life, are telling them what to do because they know what their skill set is. They can build a boat. They can build fire in 30 seconds. They can run out in the jungle and feed 80 people in 10 minutes. They, the skill set is massive. They're diplomats, doctors, lawyers, pharmacists. Same thing with the Juntuazi in Botswana, the Lao Tzu in northern Thailand, the Himba in, you know, northern Namibia in what's called their Himba land. All the tribes that I've spent time with, the first peoples of this uh, uh, country who we've marginalized onto reservations. I just spent two days in Arizona um, with uh, a group of women called Indivisible Tohono who are trying to uh, restore voting rights and some kind of uh, societal equity to uh, people marginalized on a reservation that's the size of Connecticut that has 14,000 employees and it's part of our voter suppression episode of this new series that I'm doing. And one of the women turned to me and said, we joke all the time, we know our skill set is way to survive under the conditions we have in America over the last two, 300 years to survive out here, you know, displaced from, in many cases, many tribes from traditional lands and forced to move somewhere else. We have a skill set that, you know, other people just dream about. And I think it's, it's, it's quantifiable, it's true. Any sociologist or anthropologist will tell you. But because of our, you know, white nostalgia in this country, because of our systemic racism, because of our propping up of the white patriarchy and on and on and on, 
we have created a, a culture that wants to marginalize all those people or think because your skin is dark and you wear a loincloth and you live in a jungle somewhere that somehow you don't quite have the skill set that a, you know a lawyer in New York has. Well, let me tell you something. That, that tribal person living on that river system in the Amazon has 200 times the skill set that that lawyer in New York does. It, the modern world, we've weaned ourselves off of this. And I, we, there's all these pioneering uh, reclamation efforts by different groups here in this country to kind of restore that skill set. I mean, there are a lot of guys, and look, I'm not arguing for violence. I'm just saying, I know a lot of people, men and women, that don't know how to make a fire, don't know how to win a fist fight, don't know how to kiss someone else properly, don't know how to cook their own meal or hunt for it. I mean, it, it, there's a there's certain amount of skills that I think it's kind of good to have in your back pocket in case you need to. You mean when like when it. when the electricity goes off? Exactly. <laughs> I talk about this a lot, actually. You know, there's three things that I consistently say are mandatory. Yep. For everybody. Learn to swim. Yep. Ride a bike. Yep. Shift a car. Yep. All three of those things will either save your life or somebody else's. Yep. Basics. Yep. Then from there, moves on. Then you learn how but to. But you, you, you make a really good point. We live in, well, I live in Minnesota. Electricity goes out several times during the summer because of these, some incredible hail storms. You know, it gets really, really humid. The sky explodes. And because the earth is wobbling on its axis and falling into the sun and our government isn't telling us about it, it, it just is. gets worse and worse every year. <laughs> um, I learned that down at Area 51 just last week where I was also shooting another show. Did you get to go there? Uh, <laughs> I, oh. I've been there before, but yes, the the I'm, I'm kidding, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Um, I the, was pro. But the funny, the you know, I, you, you joke all the time, what are you doing when electricity goes out? I mean, like there are people I know who don't know how to start a generator or what you would plug into it to then put the electricity in the house uh, back on. Now, that it can be a life-saving effort if you have uh, a sick child, elderly living with you. Um, do, do you know how to do, ba I know this sounds crazy, but like basic first aid. Uh, people do the, you know, the, the, the YMYWCAs all over the YMYWHAs all over the country. You can take a two or three day basic first aid course and just know how to give someone the Heimlich, you know, resuscitate someone, you know, just kind of the basics. And if you don't know how to do it, it the Heimlich is, it is, I mean, I don't like to make jokes about this, but I, I had never had the opportunity to do it. Then when one year, two years ago, I used it twice because someone was choking next to me. But to to be able to look at them calmly and say, because, you know, the big sign is if they can't make any noise at all. And I say, hold up a finger if you're choking. Just very calmly try to calm them down because if they're getting hyper about it, they can constrict more muscle, it can get worse, right? And because my friend wasn't making any noise and she just held up a finger and I just very calmly got up and I Heimlich second pump out came the chewy piece of beef tenderloin, which is a real frequent offender in the Heimlich world. Because it's too soft. Too It's soft and mushy and we hate that cut of meat, don't we? Does everybody know what that cut of meat does? The beef tenderloin. It's just a terrible... It's, it's not one of my favorite cuts. It's not mine either, but no, most people don't even know what that does. That's true. You know what it does? It makes people choke. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> um, 
and so out this thing popped. We were at this big dinner party and nobody noticed. And I, I was like, I just saved this woman's life. You know, you, you want, I, I'd like a little recognition, but it just, it's, I'm not trying to pat myself in the back. All I'm saying is, is because of my travel and the stuff that I've done, I've had to take basic first aid, right? We need people on the crew who know how to administer basic first aid. I did a survivor episode of Bizarre Foods eight years ago, and I got to, uh, they got some Navy SEALs and some instructors from uh, SEER school, the search of aid and rescue school. And I worked with them for two days of minimal teaching. But now when I want to forage, when I want to uh, build a fire, if I want to catch fish in the wild, I mean, there's so many, I know how to clean water on my own with no other tools. I know how to do stuff. Is that the moss trick? That no one else, there are certain plants that you can actually use to strain water and drink it through. And there's ways to create uh, a system that no, I mean, obviously if some, if it's chemically tainted, you know, of course in, in a, urban environment here it doesn't work but if you have dirty water you're on an island and you have water that's not necessarily safe to drink there are ways to clean it and i i know this sounds really crazy but like there's little books you can go online and like you know learn this kind of stuff and i would encourage people i'm not a survivalist i'm not a prepper i'm not an alarmist i've you know i live in a cushy house in a you know in a nice suburb you know in minnesota it's i'm not gonna lie it's a nice setup right but if I, if I ever need to do that kind of thing, I know what to do. And I think we've lost that in society. I think we have two ends of the spectrum going on in the world right now. We have the people that think the zombie apocalypse is coming next week and they're mm-hmm. stockpiling. And yep. they're, they're overthinking it. Yep. And then you have the other end that have no conscious thought of, you know, like, <laughs> yes. it's like what? It's, what's going on? You're yes. bleeding to death on the floor? Like, yes. Such a simple thing as a tourniquet. Mm-hmm. It's not hard. And I, right. But, I, but I, I think there's a, there's a change in time. And I think... Yeah. And I, I love that, you know, I go to the checkout at the supermarket and you see those magazines like, you know, Simple and, you know, they're, they're, they're all themed the same way. You know, it's, it's all about returning to something. It's a nostalgic look back. And I think in some cases, we were talking, I think, before we actually started recording about restricting cell phone access to our children nothing is healthier, right? We, oh, yeah. There's now study after study after study that having that thing glued to your hand is not good for me. It's not good for you. It's not good for our kids. Um, it's good to step back. We go, we find all, we rush headlong into things because they make money. I mean, look at this whole vaping thing, right? Jesus. I mean, everyone thought that that was the solution. Turns out it's making people sicker. Margarine was the solution because butter wasn't good for right butter was unhealthy well it turns out margarine with all it was those trans fats fa- that was fabio's fault <laughs> <laughs> with all of those all of those you know trans fats and stuff oh, for them bad for you. were much worse for your your, your heart and everything right so we thought uh email you talked about time before you're younger than i am but I remember a point in time where we didn't write 200 letters a day. We actually picked up the phone and called people. So there was that human connection. So they invent this thing called email so that we don't have to write as many letters. 
that we can connect with people all the time. And now it dominates some people's lives. I get 200 of them a day and I have to put an, uh, I'm out of the op. Well, what, what is my auto reply? My auto reply says I only check emails once a day and I don't necessarily reply once a day because everyone thinks if they've emailed me, it's, it's like back, instantaneous. Yeah. I get texts from people, even with the message up saying, Hey, I emailed you a half hour ago. Where's the blank or the blank. And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like, I'm doing my day. I'm, I'm not here to answer you your you're question. Living? You're living. I'm living. You're supposed to stop. Hang I'm living my best life, Chris. Oh my God, I got an email. Everybody <laughs> stop what you're doing. <laughs> Don't you love it? Wait a minute. You just sent me an email. I'm in the middle of a shoot. I'm in Namibia and I'm supposed to answer it right now, but you're going to text me. I'm not. Yeah. You I, know, I, but by the same, by the same token to bring this full circle, when you build relationships with people and they text you and say, oh, yes, oh you're in you town, would you my podcast? I'm glad that I can <laughs> embrace the technology. Yes, and when I <laughs> called you in a panic and you called me back from Germany, it's, but it's someone got the hour what, of the morning. But that's when, when someone, be, do you want to know what the reason is? Because I know the next time it's me that I need to call someone and do something. I, I just did, because I've been sober a long time and I work on a lot of these issues, People in the industry know that I'm a good number to call if they have a friend or someone who's in trouble. Um, and it is the it is the most valuable thing that I do. Number one, it makes me feel good and useful. But number two, it also takes me out of my own selfishness and my own pity pot that I find myself in. Because helping another human being, the reciprocal effect of being generous and actually helping other people is feeling good about yourself and staying right-sized. And that's a, I just think that's a really important thing. I feel bad for the people that don't have that opportunity or haven't set up their life that way. It's one of the great things about parenting and being in a long-term relationship with a significant other, however you choose to define that, is that you actually get a chance to have conflict and work on yourself and be responsible to something else and walk in the door and say, honey, I'm sorry about what I said this morning. I mean, that's a great that's a great benefit for those of us that are in relationships. Let's Guys like you and I have a greater opportunity to say those words, but I digress. Yeah. So, I mean, we could go on. The scary part is, is you and I could go on for like hours. We could. You have to invite me back. Okay. okay. So, I, I do this thing. So, it's just a quick fire. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yours is a little different. Lightning round? Lightning round. Okay. Hamburger hot dog. <laughs> I'm gonna screw you. No, no, no. Hot. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go hot dog. Everybody because loves in case meats. When I'm at, when I'm at a, um, when I have the choice in front of me, I do hot dog first. And when I go to a stadium, I have to have a hot dog. And I love that kind of food. I love you. You and I share a passion for that kind of stuff. Do you remember when we are? Our wives and our children were so angry with us when we went to Disney World together. <laughs> the, the Zimmern Cosentino trip. Do you remember you also had your mom oh my on that trip? She was like, you guys are going to die. Okay. So we had, we had, I mean, it was, it was crazy. But what, the over the course of a day, but over the course of a day, Ugh. what made everyone angry at us is that we devolved into eight-year-olds. Our wives demanded of our children 
to elevate their game as the day <laughs> went on because kids can get really squirrely at a place like Disney World, right? Oh. With all of the, you know, bright lights and, you know, things bouncing off. And you and I became overgrown children and we I remember the very last thing we were like, we have to get a hot dog. And they were like looking at us like, we have to get the kids to bed. <laughs> you know, it, we started at eight in the morning. It's grueling. It's hot out. Everyone's miserable. And you and I are like, hot dogs, you know, and it's 10 at night. And we had to go into that one little booth in the Magic Kingdom oh and God. beg them to make us hot dogs. And no, everyone else, anyone want one? Anyone want one? Everyone was like, no, we've been eating all day. We want to go home to the hotel we and shower and watch TV. And you and I were like, no, we're getting hot dogs. <laughs> And we got into a lot of trouble. We, but we yes, got a hot lot dog. of trouble. We got a lot of trouble. Hot dog. <laughs> I forgot about that. I have that a was funny. Of that. I actually have a picture of yeah, that. I gotta was, find it. Just dynamite. I might actually. I'm gonna have to find that when I mm -hmm. put up the podcast. Uh, sushi. Uh, uh, so nigiri or sashimi? <sighs> nigiri. Uni caviar. That's a trick question. They're both eggs. Oh, oh, good answer. That's actually the best answer I've heard yet. Because I'm, I, and I will, you know, I just, here's the thing. Yeah, but over one's the, a go Over the last couple oh. years, I have, uh, but a, asexual or trisexual. Correct. So, I mean, you know, there's, it, over the last three or four years, for whatever reason, uh, there's been a caviar pipeline in my life. And I've had more caviar maybe in the last three years than I have in the previous. And I've been with you, you know, at, in, Places where all of a sudden, you know, someone you work with has, you know, dumped a big tin of caviar in our laps and a bag of potato chips and we eat the whole thing. Right. Yep. So it's delicious. I love it. And I understand what a privilege that is. And but I have really developed an insane appetite for salty cured fish parts over the course of my life. And caviar is one of the great ones. Right. So. And I love salty, dried fish. I, I just love that. I love that flavor. And the, the fishier and funky, it's like I like, it's, like, it's why I like a poisse over other cheeses. Just like stinky anything I love. And so I love fish eggs. But I just was doing, I, someone asked me, I'm figuring out my demo for a food festival coming up and I'm doing a thing with, with urchin. I'm doing two or three different recipes with it. So I had it on my brain because I'm also obsessed with sea urchin. I have a chance to dive uh, for it in several countries. And, and I just love that, that there's something unique about nothing else tastes like sea urchin nope. in the world. So, but yes, they're both eggs. So I, I take an exception. I'll go see both, both continue. Wow. Wow. Okay. But backed up, but backed up. Okay. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. this one is quite heated. Mm -hmm. Risotto or paella? Oh, fuck. Depends um, on who you talk to. Yeah, well, yeah. Do not tell Jose this, um, but I'm going to say risotto. Because Italians are lazy and they know how to stir and the Spaniards just put it on the fire and walk away. because No. What I love... <laughs> That's my argument with what I love. <laughs> what I love about paella, cooked properly, and historically it's always done over an open fire so that that smoke and that wood flavor Correct. curls over the top of that pan. The crusting I love, the variety of ingredients I love. There is an, it's easier to make risotto. Paella the right way requires more work, which I'm willing to do. I love making it at home. 
But at the end of the day, risotto is, and I can do more things with it. So I'm just going to say risotto, but nobody tell Jose Andres because he will, he will kill me. No, he won't. We have a debate on the regular time. He tells me I don't know how to cook and I tell him he's too lazy to stir the rest. <laughs> That's our conversation. <laughs> this has been an ongoing debate for many years. <laughs> okay. Uh, ham. You get three choices. American, Italian, or Spanish. It not even close. American. Country ham. Not even not even close. And the reason is it took me a while to find the people, you know, that are are making such exceptional American hams that I've developed a a a keener desire for it. Every once in a while when I have, you know, Iberico, Belota, you know, double X, you know, $200 a pound and, and it just melts in your mouth. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the best ham in the world. I'm a bright, shiny objects person. So it's usually what I had last. I was in Phoenix and there's a, a chef there at Andrioli Grocery for anyone there in town who makes his own prosciutto, cures it in his butcher shop there and he cut it coarsely with a short knife for me like in uneven piece some of them were thick and i was like yeah. oh god this isn't even sliced right and i was like this isn't going to be good and i put it in my mouth and it was the most sublimely delicious flavored stuff it's extraordinary however at the end of the day and I, we all have our biases so i don't want to get letters but you know when you get a ham from a guy like dwight muse in Nancy, Kentucky, who only makes a, you know, three, four hundred hams a year. He's been doing it for a long time. So, it, but it's still, it's only three, you know, three, four hundred in, three, four hundred out, right? And we profiled him in one of my shows, and he and I have stayed friends. And I'm lucky enough to be on, you know, his short list of people that can actually get one every other year. You eat a bite of that ham and you realize that that's everything a hog wanted to be when it was growing up. I mean, it is, it's just the finest expression of antique porcine humility that I've ever, I've ever had. It's just extraordinary. There's something to be said for country hams. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, I love it. And then I learned from a grandmother that, you know, I take the fat and little ends and I put them in the oil when I'm frying chicken, stuff like that that lends that little bit of funkiness oh, to yeah. the, to the chicken. Um, I'll take cubes of that, you know, fermented fat and I'll put it in the pan. I'll make scrambled eggs in that or risotto. I'll stir the, I'll use that as the fat to start my rice with. And it gives that funky little flavor to it or in an amatrachan or some kind of sauce. So I use every single piece of that ham. But then when you get down to the end and you boil it for three hours and then you cool it and that ham loses its funk and its saltiness and it just becomes this boiled ham heaven for whatever you want to do, a ham salad, throw it in a pasta, whatever. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with them. I'm in a period in my life where I'm obsessed with American country hams. Coffee or tea? Coffee. With milk or without? Without. Now... I do drink a lot of tea and I have probably 40 at my house. I mean, I, I'm, I have a hot water machine to temperature. I mean, I got the whole thing cause I do love tea, but if I'm on a desert Island, I, I love coffee and I love a cup of coffee in the morning. That's my thing. I'll drink tea at 
in the afternoon and evening, but I'm coffee in the morning. Cheese or dessert? Cheese. I've never been, I love sweets, but I've never been a chocolate guy. If you told me desserts disappeared, doesn't matter. But I buy cheeses at some of our local cheese shops in Minnesota, the places where it's not wrapped in plastic, where they actually cut the pieces for you and then wrap it up for you in paper to take it home so it breathes because it's a living thing. And then I put it in my cheese platter with my domed lid on it that has a hole in it so it breathes and it ate and it chained every day for the next you know, sometimes I eat it in 12 hours. Sometimes I eat it over the course of four days. Depends on the type and what it is. And the flavor changes. It, it's just, it's an obsession and it's something that I just adore. And the funkier, nastier, the the, the dirtiest camembert you can find, the epois that no one else wants to eat. I don't want spoiled uh, blue vein cheeses that are ammoniated and not good but really ripe blue vein cheeses I'm crazy about. Amazing. Yeah. I know I you gonna, I know you are too. So I was going to do one more. It was either chocolate or fruit, but you already answered it. Fruit. Fruit. You know, I, and and I do believe like cilantro or other there's some people who are like, "Oh no, I never eat that." If chocolate disappeared from planet Earth, I would never miss it. I I wouldn't even really notice. It's funny. I actually like Oh, and by it. the way, cacao is disappearing, just in case anyone wants to. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. being over. I do like raw cacao. Oh, my God. When you get... That's like it's a, so good. Oh, it's like a Sour Patch Kid with a oh. cocoa kicker. And I like cocoa nibs. I like using them more in savory than I do. I mm-hmm. actually like the, the chocolate as a sweet item. Yeah. Yeah. It's I love more. chocolate in moles and th- I mean, yeah. just all that stuff. is. <laughs> it's glorious. very Italian to use those in the old school Italian mm-hmm. ways. Very much so. Well, Andrew, thank right. you very much. You've uh, it's time now for me to make you dinner. I love you. Yeah, that's that's the other good thing. I'm walking into the dining room and I'm going to eat, and I'm very happy about that. Yes, and by the way, we do have a lot of country hams here for you. Oh, fantastic! We do is something here called around the world and eight hams. Really? Yeah. So we have Spanish, French, Italian, and a whole bunch of American. at Jackrabbit. Yeah. Here, here at the Dunaway Hotel in Portland, Oregon. It just became an infomercial. We're going to call it at this point. <laughs> Love you. Love you too, bro. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.